But tonight we're gonna talk about redeeming sexual brokenness. So what does it look like when you feel like you're a mess up, when you've listened to enough messages about purity and you feel like you still can't clean up your life, you're still having problems with addictions or you have this broken past that you feel like one day, whoever it is that you'll marry, you'll have to talk about it with and you don't know how traumatizing that'll be or whether or not that's a deal breaker for the relationship. But let's talk about what Paul encouraged the Corinthians with in verses nine and 10, we'll pray and we'll talk about the message. First Corinthians chapter six, verse nine, Paul says a couple shocking things, ready? Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the spirit of our God. Lord, help us to see with eyes of faith how you see us, not how we define ourselves, not how the world defines us. Help us, Lord, to live for you in a world and culture that is very antithetical to the way that you think and the way that you plan. Help us to live as you will for us to live on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. I think you'd probably agree with me that there are probably more opportunities to fall into sin like never before. If you even think about the fact that most of us grew up watching movies and having the choice of seeing like, all right, maybe I shouldn't watch this movie because it's rated R and there's gonna be, you know, sexual activity. There's gonna be a lot of gore and okay, I'm not gonna watch that. Or you might be watching a PG-13 movie and you're like, well, it has some language. And, but you have a choice before you even watch the thing as to whether or not you, you should watch it. But today with social media, everything's unregulated, right? So, well, for the most part, and we're not getting into that debate right now. But here's what I mean. If you have a TikTok account, no judgment, but you can assess for yourself. If you have a TikTok account, you probably saw things that you did not ask for and want to see, right? Because of the For You page, just right there on the first screen. Unlike Instagram, well, not completely like Instagram because you have the Explore page, but with these other social medias, you're increasingly exposed to things that you absolutely do not want to see, things that are disturbing, right? Or sometimes can actually violate your conscience. And there's no warning. It just pops up. And it doesn't have to be social media. It could be just on an internet page. And then there's a pop-up or somebody sends you a spam message. And it's like, hey, it's your long lost friend and click here and you're going to you know, get 50% off, whatever. And you click it and it's a virus. And then your computer is filled with pornography or whatever. And so now in our culture, there's more opportunities to stumble into sin unlike ever before. And now you have dating apps, but not just dating apps. You have apps where you can talk to random people who are going to, maybe show you things that are a little bit racy. Or you might even have apps or websites where you can specifically find someone that you want to commit infidelity with, right? So there's websites and apps and different things 
that are specifically for people to enter into sexual sin. That exists today. More people are more connected than ever before. So there's more opportunities to sin, but here's something else I wanna suggest to you. There's more opportunities to shine light in a dark world than ever before. Wouldn't you agree? There's an opportunity for us as the church to be set apart, different than the world, and say, we don't live that way than ever before. It's easy to distinguish yourself from every other person on the planet that doesn't believe in Jesus. Just read your Bible, have, have his views on the world, on sexuality. You're gonna be an oddball, right? But if you do that, you can actually show the world what it's like to experience the love of God in your life, to experience the forgiveness of God, his way, his plan, his desires. And the question is, will we? Will we step into that plan? Or are we gonna live like the world and do things that the world asks us to do and conform? You know, the Bible says that popular verse, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, right? So that you change the way that you think, you let God change your mind, change your heart, and then your actions wind up lining up with what God thinks and what God wants, not what the world wants. Here in 1 Corinthians, we see Paul's writing to the Corinthian church and I'll just tell you straight up, this church was bad. Like if you walked into this church, you would be like, this church is messed up. Like it seems like they're probably following Jesus, but then they're doing weird things with the spiritual gifts and talking in tongues and people are confused. And then on top of that, there's all kinds of sexual promiscuity. And a lot of that is in due in part to the culture that they were living in. In the Corinthian culture, they believed, oftentimes the Greeks believed in something called Gnosticism, which is a belief that essentially boils down to them believing that the spirit, the soul is good, the body and physical things are bad. But you can kind of separate the two, right? So with my spirit and soul, I worship God. And with my body, my body is a body. So what my body does, you know, it just, it really doesn't matter. Because at the end of the day, when I die, my spirit and my soul will go into heaven and my body will go into the earth. And that's it. I will be, a, and that's where you kind of get in the Greek philosophy, this anti-biblical stance, by the way, that we'll be soulless or we'll be bodiless souls for all of eternity. You will have a body, a physical body in heaven. And this is a super side note, but it's worth saying, heaven's gonna be back here on earth, by the way. And God's gonna renew this earth and restore this earth. He's not gonna toss it away and say, oh, that was a mess. Let's just be light, like souls and we'll just float around in like metaphysical reality for all of existence. Like we're gonna come back here and he's gonna fix things and he's gonna restore things. It's gonna be much better than ever before. But that's a side note. And we can talk about that part later. So Gnosticism was the belief that the soul's good, the body is, eh, and the body does body things. So because of that, they had no problem. Corinthian Christians had no problem saying, I worship God on Sunday, and then I go into the, the whorehouse and have sex with prostitutes. No problem. It's just what I do. And they said, well, it's the body. The body has physical needs. You know, like I have sexual needs. I have physical needs like hunger. When I'm hungry, I eat. When I have sexual needs, I just have sex. And their culture was way worse than the church. Although that's pretty bad, right? But the culture was way worse than, than the church. Corinthian culture would be so bad that they fit, felt like because of the Gnosticism, they could just go out into the street and self-please and do whatever sexual acts out there and open. And it's just, you know, that's the body and the body does body things. And so there is so much crazy sexual activity happening in that area 
that the church kind of started sliding and saying, I guess we could do this too. I guess that's what everybody else believes. And when you think about it, I'm not seeing the same thing. But isn't it true that there are Christians and probably a good portion of them that go to our church, they worship God on Sunday and look at pornography when they get home, right? And so it's like, it's an addiction. It's just my feelings, my emotions. This is, it's not anything I can do about it, right? And this is kind of what Paul's confronting. So think about this. Think about this with me. If there were modern day preachers addressing this Corinthian church, how do you think they would respond? What would they do to stop this Corinthian church from going into these whorehouses and having sex with prostitutes? What would they say? Maybe, maybe a modern day preacher going back in time would have said things like, you better stop it. You're going to get an STD. You know, it's very unhealthy. You, you could probably uh, wind up having all kinds of things happen to you as a negative result. God might judge you physically. It's very possible. Or maybe they'll say things like, hey, listen, every time you have sex with a prostitute, you're, I just, those things you can never erase. And you're going to have to confess every single sexual act that you've ever done to your spouse one day. Think about how terrible that'd be. Do you really want to go that route? I don't think you do. Or they'll say things like, listen, every image, any pornographic image you've ever looked at, you're going to bring into your marriage and they'll never, ever be erased. Right? You've probably heard these modern day preaching, right? And some of you are like, what's wrong with that? But then when you place it back into the Bible, it's like, is that what Paul did? That Paul just warned them, like, there are going to be serious negative physical ramifications for what you're doing. Let me warn you about every time you go into that, you know, have sex with prostitutes, here's what's going to happen. He doesn't. What does he say? Verse nine again, okay, let's read it again. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be, be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. Also a side note, Emperor Nero, which is around this time period, what he did because the sexual activity in this area was so crazy, he had a boy, a young boy, castrated and married him. And he became a sex slave. That's how crazy it was. And he was the emperor, right? That's how crazy and how bad. So you think things are bad now? Things were really bad back then. That's how bad it was. And so Paul says, listen, it had nothing to do with that, right? And then he names all these different sexual sins. And then he says in verse 11, pay attention to this. And such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the spirit of our God. He reminds them of their true identity. He doesn't say, listen here, you fornicators. And I don't think anybody talks like that anyway, but right. He says, and such were some of you. Not these other labels. He doesn't even say they're sinners. He says, you were washed, sanctified, justified in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, how many come into our churches only seeing themselves in light of their sin? They step in, the first thing they think about is all the terrible things that they've done. All the things that are gonna separate them from the good Christians, right? Like here's a section of Christians that are really good and they read the Bible and stuff and here are the really messed up Christians. I mean, the ones that come in, they really have problems. Like God really had to save those guys. Now, if you wanna add on to how, 
how messed up this was? First Corinthians chapter five, the, the chapter before, Paul is rebuking them because they became so hardened to their sexual sin that there was, he said, listen, I heard there was reported in your church that there's a man who's sleeping with his stepmom. Even the world doesn't do that. You got to kick him out of the church. I'm paraphrasing, but this is basically what he says. Get rid of that person. Kick them out of the church. He has unrepentant sin. Everyone's just making jokes about it. This is terrible. What's wrong with you? But you want to know something crazy? If you know 2 Corinthians, you know the context. That same guy comes back. After he's given over to Satan, it talks about in 1 Corinthians 5, like give him over, let him hit rock bottom. In 2 Corinthians, the next letter that Paul writes, he says, he goes as far as to say this, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 8. Therefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love to him. Chase after him. Yes, he reali- now that he realizes the extent of his sin, now go after him. I don't know anybody like that in our church, right? Who has had something that messed up. And here's the other thing, like we're gonna go to heaven and probably see that guy. Like, oh, you were the guy. You were the guy that slept with his stepmom. That's really awkward. And like, yep, I'm, yep, I'm in the Bible. That's my claim to fame. Like, that's terrible, right? But he doesn't have that label. And neither do you. When you come into church and you only see yourself in light of your sin, you're doing something that the Bible itself doesn't. Such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And here's where we usually mix up the difference between justification and sanctification. We believe that justification, well, justification is a legal term. It's a status, just like adoption. It's not like you're like in between being adopted, right? You're either are or you're not. And you're stamped, here it is. You are now adopted. Your status has changed. You may not feel any different, but you're now a child of God. That's, that's the way it is. And when Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins and he resurrected in resurrection power, sin was defeated. All of those sins were defeated. It's gone 2,000 years ago. It's not like you're like, all right, well, I really have to earn it now. There's nothing you have to earn, nothing you have to do. But sanctification is first when you're saved, you're set apart from the world, but then we wanna be made more like Jesus every single day. But here's, here's the key verse. It says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This verse illustrates this point, which is none of us have a problem with believing that when Jesus died on the cross, he was imputed sin, our sin. It's not like God the Father looks at Jesus and goes like, oh no, you did what? I can't believe that you did all these sinful practices. Now we're gonna have to kill you. That's not what happened. It was imputed as if he sinned. He took legally our sins upon him on the cross. We don't have a problem with that. But what we do have a problem with is that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We have a hard time believing that in the same way that Jesus became sin on the cross, we became righteous. Apart from our works, even before we were born. So that when you believe by faith in Jesus Christ, in his free gift, you are then forgiven for all sins past, present, and future. You're given a different status, a different name, a different identity because you are not your own anymore. You belong to God. He is your heavenly father. 
That's it. And as a child of God, you don't have to worry whether or not he loves you. You just know by virtue of being his adopted child, I am loved no matter what I do. It's a beautiful thing. So here's, here's the, the, the main point of the entire message. And don't miss this. Everybody look up here. So how do you, how do you redeem sexual brokenness? Here, here's how you do it. When you know whose you are, you know where you belong. When you know whose you are, you know where you belong. Here's an illustration. Everybody knows Tatum, three-year-old daughter, gonna be four next month. Super cute. But as cute as she is, if she walks into the White House, she's gonna be kicked out. She doesn't belong there unless I'm the president of the United States. In which case, it doesn't matter if you're the ugliest, weirdest, most annoying kid on the planet. By virtue of being my kid, that's not her, by the way, (laughs) total opposite. By being my child, if I'm president, you belong in the White House. The end. Now get this. What's God's house? What What does he own? Well, Psalm 24 verse one says, the earth is the Lord's in all its fullness, the world and those who dwell therein. What does that mean? That means if God is your heavenly father, there's really nowhere that you don't belong. And God can use you anywhere to preach his gospel and his good news. You don't have to worry about what people think. But here's the other, other truth that people forget too. When you know whose you are, you'll also know where you don't belong, right? Think about the prodigal son, that parable where there's a son who's just really annoying and looks at his dad and says, you know, I wish that you were dead so that I could just take my inheritance, my share, and just like spend it the way that I want. And the father, being as loving as he is, says, you know what, son, here it is. Here's your inheritance. He goes off and squanders it on all kinds of debauchery. And as he goes, he finally finds himself spending all of his money and then he's working on a farm and he's eating with the pigs, literally, in the little pig pen. And as he's doing that, you, remember, you know what brings him back to his father? It's not, oh, I'm such a terrible person. I'm so, oh, I just, I should have known the warnings and I should have thought about it. You know what brought him back? He says, what am I doing here? I know how good the father's house is. I know where I belong. He remembered who his father was. And here's the thing for you and me. So many people, I think as Christians, don't make the Father's house that appealing. When people run away from God because of their sin, do we have that kind of reputation so that when they hit rock bottom, they go, ah, I remember how good it was to be in church. Or do they think about church and go, oh, thank God I'm not in church anymore. Those people are crazy, right? Those are the most judgmental, evil people I've ever met in my life. So that when they find friends of the world, they find a home. Non-judgmental, loving people, accept me as I am. But why not think about how to bring joy back to the Father's house and know what the actual gospel is. We're saved by grace, not of works, lest anyone should boast. None of us can stand up on our high horse and be like, I'm so glad that God barely had to save me because I'm such a great person. None of us can boast. All of us are here by grace. And so freely we have received and freely we give to those that walk through this door 
and say, listen, the same gift that was given to me, I can give to you, that Jesus came to save sinners. Paul said, of whom I am chief, that he would make me an example to everybody else and say, if he could save me, he could save you. So do we make God's house good? In the remainder of our time, we're gonna talk about whose you are. That's the key to redeeming sexual brokenness. And I I hope that in the remainder of our message, we'll find God's healing grace and the power to walk in this freedom. We'll do it in three ways in the remainder of this chapter. Number one, asking the question, whose power are you under? Whose power are you under? Number two, whose life are you joined to? Whose life are you joined to? And then number three, whose body has been broken? Whose body has been broken? So number one, and remember, there's a podcast. You can always listen to it afterwards on our website. Whose power are you under? Let's look at verse 12. So Paul describes these different sins and says, but that's not you. You used to be like that. That's not you anymore. And just because you have an instance of being covetous doesn't make you destined for hell, right? Like you're God's child now. You have a new identity. Now he says, let's, let's talk about some of the things that you are combating me with. Some of your arguments. Verse 12, he says, he quotes, maybe a poet, maybe they're saying that was kind of going around. All things are lawful for me, but all things, he says, are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. In other words, so this saying kind of just was like, Maybe it went around for the Corinthians in their culture that people said like, hey, listen, the body is the body. So all things are lawful for me. I can do whatever I want. Maybe Corinthian Christians said this as they were experiencing the grace of God. They just said like, well, now I can do whatever I want. But Paul says, but not all things are helpful. At the same time, and I'm not gonna be brought under the power of any. Dallas Willard, who's a philosopher and Christian author, He makes mention in in his book, The Spirit of the Disciplines, about the fact that historic Christianity, the original symbol was not the cross. When we think of Christianity, we often think about the symbol being the crucifix, right? Jesus dying on the cross. But did you know for the early disciples in the early church what the actual symbol was? It was the empty tomb, the resurrection. And his theory is that these early Christians, the thing that gave them power to witness and to walk in holiness and sanctification was the fact that they were witnesses to the resurrection. I mean, if you saw Jesus die on a cross, murdered, and then three days later he rose and he was like, hey, I'm fine. I mean, here's the holes and stuff, but like, I'm good. And I'm gonna ascend into heaven now. And boop, he just beams up. Wouldn't you flip out of your mind and just be like, this is crazy, right? And live with that boldness that the earliest disciples did. And they were often martyred, killed for their faith in Jesus because that culture was so hostile to Christianity, any other religion besides the religion of Rome. But then after a while, all the people that were early witnesses started to die out. And so what's gonna invoke that same response, that same power? Well, maybe not the resurrection, but now the crucifix, the cross, the death And I I often think about like, some of you have seen The Passion of the Christ, that movie. I remember I saw that when I was in high school and I went with my youth group. And I remember this feeling, I don't think anybody said this, but I had this feeling like 
if I don't cry in this movie, I really don't love God. So I'm just like praying. I'm like, Lord, please make me cry in this movie. And there's like one little moment where they have Jesus like making a table with his dad, Joseph. And I'm like, this is the moment. This is a sentimental moment. I'm going to cry. And there's like one little tear that shed. I'm like, yes, I'm saved, you know. But I think that's kind of like what we do now is like, I need to really feel bad when I'm doing worship songs. They have to be the really like sentimental worship songs. And I need to think about all my sin. And as I'm thinking about all my sin and how bad of a person I am, I'm just gonna look at the cross. And I'm like, yes, okay. I know that I'm a Christian. And I, I feel like I need to do something different. I need to beat myself up and go into the world and tell the world that they need to beat themselves up too. But that's, that's not what the early church did. That's not what Paul was referring to when he said, in Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. And so now you have these people who are obviously committing sexual practices that don't line up with the teachings of Jesus. So what do you do? Well, Paul says, hey, listen, you may think that like, you can just kind of do whatever you want, but the question is whose power are you under? Are you going into prostitutes because the power of God is compelling you, right? Like, I find that hard to believe. I mean, this is a great criteria for anything that we're doing as Christians. We're like, well, this movie's not really that bad, but like, me, but like, why not filter it under the, under the question of, but like, does this give glory to God? Can I thank God after watching this movie? Am I watching, am I doing this thing? Am I at this party because I feel compelled by God's power to go share his good news? Or am I pressured by a bunch of my friends and they just want me to relax and have a night off? What's our criteria and whose power are we under? Because all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. Verse 13. So now you see, he says, foods for the stomach and the stomach's for food. This is another quote that he uses. It's also probably popular in the culture, as I mentioned before that the Greeks would often say. It's like, hey, listen, food's for the stomach, stomach's for food. You're hungry, you gotta eat, you wanna have sex. You should probably go have sex. That's the way that they looked at it. And he says, verse 13, but God will destroy both it and them. Now the body's not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God both raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Now, the ESV study Bible makes a comment on this verse and says, the Corinthians have adopted from the culture around them the idea that the body is permitted to have everything that it craves. Paul knows that the human desires are tainted with sin, which uses these desires to master the person for its own evil purposes. Once again, we're going back to Gnosticism was their popular philosophy. And so it influenced everything, even Christianity. So here's where we got to stop and say, be careful of catchy phrases, slogans, quotes that are unbiblical. It's really popular right now to post on your social media these links to all these different documents on how you can be anti-racist or how you can do this thing or that thing. It's fine. But have you stopped before you share to ask the question, is this in line with what scripture teaches? Maybe use that as a filter. Because maybe some things we're posting are helpful but not all things. And we have to ask that question because the philosophies of our day are always trying to bring you under its power. And make, make no mistake, Satan always has an agenda. 
He doesn't want to control you just because. He's like, oh, this will be fun. Let me see him dance. Satan wants to bring you under his power because he wants to destroy you. He wants to destroy Christians. He knows he can't affect your salvation, but he can affect your effectiveness. He can stop you from sharing the gospel. He can stop you from living for Christ. He can stop you from having joy in this world. So ask yourself, whose power are you under? With our context, there are things that are addictive behaviors that become normalized. And suddenly it's not a big deal anymore. Whether it is pornography or masturbation, or maybe it's the way that you're physical with your girlfriend or your boyfriend. But we can't normalize sin. We always have to bring it back to scripture, no matter how we feel about it, right? If Jesus is the truth, everything that we believe, everything that we do has to line up with our teacher and our master, Jesus. Otherwise, it's like, why, I mean, like, why listen to anything Jesus says? If we're gonna say, like, we're gonna pick and choose what we're gonna follow, is Jesus really your Lord and your master? David Guzik, who's a commentator, also a pastor, has this quote. He says, a lifestyle of sin begins with single acts of sin. That's why we need to be careful. It's never just a little thing like, oh, well, I, you know, I just messed up once. No, ask yourself, where did that come from? You're seeing what's at the depths of your heart and you wanna be able to nip it in the bud, be able to bring it to the Lord and say, Lord, I don't know why this happened, but I know that, if I give my heart to you, you can change me from the inside out. So he says, once again, verse 12, I will not be brought under the power of any. Important to know when he's talking about this, he's using the language that you would use in marriage. Saying that when you're doing sexual acts, it's not like every other sin. Because just like when I'm married to my wife and I'm brought underneath her authority and her power in a sense, I can't just do whatever I want with my life. You know, the Bible even says, like, if I'm, if I'm doing something messed up to my wife, God won't listen to my prayers. It says that. Like, if you're gonna, if you're gonna be rude to your wife and you're not gonna treat her biblically, then I'm not gonna listen to you. I mean, that's a powerful thing, right? So there's a sense of power that's attributed to having that spousal relationship. Now, it's talking about when you're committing sexual acts, you're being brought under the power of someone else that may not be your spouse. So in this case, it was prostitutes. You're putting yourself under the power of prostitutes and prostitution. And there's an addictive nature to it, right? The fact that you always find yourself going back and like, this is the last time. Or it could be pornography. And you're saying, I can stop. I know I can stop. I just you know, need some more time. Or if I, if I just do this, this one you know, app on my phone or I do this thing or accountability, I can finally fix it. But you're finding yourself increasingly under its power. Or even in light of what biblical teaching is, to have premarital sex is to be linking yourself to someone that's not your spouse. So here's the question. How can you serve the Lord if you practice slavery to sin? If you're brought under the power of sin, your ability to serve the Lord will always be limited because something else is tugging at your heart. I think about like when you have those scammers that pretend that they're the IRS and they call elderly people and they say, hey, we just need your social security number. You know, like we need to check some things with your taxes and they scam them out of thousands and thousands of dollars. 
But here's the thing. They're a scammer. They don't actually have power or authority over any of these people. And all you have to do is confront the lie to rid yourself of its power. See, a lot of people still are under the power or authority of sexual sin, be it pornography or whatever else. And they think that it's something to be defeated. But the answer is Jesus already defeated on the cross. You don't have to earn God's favor. You already have it. You don't have to earn God's love. He already died on the cross for you before you were even born. The question is, will you see the lie for what, it's it, for what it is? There is no power over you other than the power that's in Jesus Christ. And when you call in his name, he can break every stronghold and break every chain. So maybe you're familiar to the power of sin, but have you ever experienced the power of salvation? Have you experienced that resurrection power that lifts you up, gives you a calling and a purpose, and you're reminded that you're not living for yourself? There's a reason why you're here on this earth, why you have breath in your lungs. It's not to just sit and be quarantined forever in your house and just wondering when all of us are going to be safe. It's to know that God is calling us out into the world to share his good news. And I'm not saying that if you're immune compromised or whatever. Don't, don't read stuff into this and quote me later. What I'm saying is, Lloyd likes to say it this way, and I always thought it was funny. What on earth are you doing for Christ's sake? <laughs> are we living under that resurrection power, the power of salvation? So our bodies have this natural relationship to food, right? Foods for the stomach, stomachs for foods. We all have this natural hunger and craving. But when he says that he's going to destroy both it and them in verse 13, what he's essentially saying is not like he's going to kill you. That one day, even though we have a natural hunger and craving for food, we're not going to need to eat food in, in the resurrected body. In eternity, we're not going to be like starving to death. One day, those things will be no longer. However, here's a key difference between sexual acts and acts for like, you know, basic needs like um, food and water and things like that. Followers of Jesus have a relationship to him that extends into eternity. The body's not for sexual immorality, not just you do whatever you want with your body, but it's for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Verse 14, and God both raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. This is speaking against the Gnosticism, right? Which says that the body is one thing and the spirit's another. He says that same body, the one that you're just saying like, I can do whatever I want with it. No, you can't just do whatever you want with it because one day God's gonna take that same body and restore it and resurrect it in power in the same way that Jesus was raised up in power. So how are you treating God's body? Romans chapter eight, verse nine says, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he is not his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. It's not something you have to do. I mean, like, <laughs> how does a dead person raise himself? He can't. What did Lazarus do? in order to be raised up from the dead, right? When, when God resurrected him. Nothing, he was dead, he couldn't do anything. And if you feel lifeless and helpless and hopeless, there's good news for you because Jesus is all the work. You only have to receive it. Number two, 
Whose life are you joined to? Whose life are you joined to? Verse 15, let's look at it. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ or limbs of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. Or do not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her. For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. So here's the question. It's a hard question. Would Jesus involve himself in that kind of activity? Would he go into a temple and just, you know, worship whatever gods with the temple prostitutes? The answer is no. But then why, why do we do that? Why would we even entertain the idea of doing these things? Because we are, when we're saved, joined to the Lord. We have this marriage covenant with the Lord. And so when we believe on Jesus, here's what he does. We're not one flesh with God, but we are one spirit. It says in Ezekiel chapter 36, God says in verse 25, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. He gives us the spirit. And some of you know it because when you're indulging in sin, there's something inside of you that's shaking. It's because God put his spirit inside of you that says, don't do this. You're going the wrong way. It's a warning sign. It's grieving the Holy Spirit. And so when we're having these sexual encounters as a believer, here's what you have to know. What Paul is saying is you are bringing Christ in it as well. It's like a person who commits adultery says you are never really a part of this to, to their spouse. It really isn't about the kids. When you say it's about you, you're not realizing the effect it does have on your kids and on your marriage. You can't just say, well, like, oh, really, I wasn't thinking about you at all. Of course you weren't. You're being selfish, but it does affect because you are one flesh, one family. And in the same way, when we indulge in sexual sin, we are cheating in a sense on God. But here's what you have to know. God fulfills all of the requirements of his covenant. When you make a marriage covenant and say, I do on that day, two parties are saying the same thing, right? that you'll be there for each other unconditionally, loving each other till death do us part. Jesus never stops his side of the deal. Hebrews chapter 13, verse five. God says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Romans chapter eight, verse 31 through 39. You probably heard this a billion times. It's long, but pay attention because maybe you forgot it because you heard it so many times. Paul says, what, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. I mean, like who's gonna accuse us of things if God's the one who judges, right? Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died. And furthermore, is also risen. Who's even at the right hand of God who also makes intercession for us. So he's, he's saying like, who's the one who's condemning? Because Jesus is the one who died to fill that condemnation. And if that's not enough, he still prays for you to get out of sin while you're in it. Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, 
For your sake, we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. If, if you didn't get the point, there's nothing stopping God from loving you. Nothing. So why is it that we don't communicate that same truth to people when they fall? Why do we make it conditional? Like, well, you need to show that you're really sorry. You need to make, like, you have to, like, prove, do something. Why not communicate that there's nothing that you can do that can make you outsin the grace of God? I know that song is like really debatable, like um, relentless love. Everybody's like, oh, relentless. I don't know about this thing. And it's like, whatever. Uh, or reckless love, not relentless love. Sorry. But the song, I think image wise gets the point, right? There's nothing stopping God from loving you. Maybe you're in sin right now and you haven't seen any physical ramifications. But you're not realizing that there is broken fellowship between you and the Lord. That you're distancing yourself from God when you're cheating, cheating on him. You know, as, as Pastor Lloyd always talks about in marriage, you would never look at your spouse and say, well, so how much can I do without it technically be cheating? Like, how mu- well, how much can I cheat on you without you actually leaving me? You never talk that way because you're in love when you're in love, you do things more than what's asked and required of you. And if we don't have that loving relationship with God, maybe we've forgotten about how much he loves us. It's been said, I've heard a pastor say years ago, um, it's really hard to convince people, and maybe you've tried this, don't try it this way, to convince somebody to love you by saying, hey, love me, love me, love me, right? But then the Bible says, what it says, here's the commandment, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. So it's like, is God doing the same thing? Wait a minute. Here's how you tell somebody, here's how you convince somebody to love you. You say, I love you first. And when people see these magnificent displays of love, that's what we all desire at the the core of us, right? We desire someone to passionately pursue us and that person is God. And he demonstrated that on the cross at your worst, not at your best. And when we see that magnificent display of Jesus dying on the cross and being resurrected, how can we not have our hearts melted and say, I love you in return? And that's where we're gonna close tonight. Lastly, number three, whose body has been broken. Verse 18, flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? whom you have from God and you are not your own for you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So Paul is saying, make no mistake. I'm telling you, flee, run away from sexual immorality. He's not being light when it comes to how damaging sin is. He says, if there's any hint of it, just get rid of it, right? I have accountability in my life. So that there's things where it's like, well, it's not really a sin, but like, it's kind of sketchy. I should probably tell somebody. And I tell those people. We all have those things that pop up on the internet or you see the scenes that you really didn't want to see. And you're like, oh, that was just kind of weird, right? 
And he texted me like, I know it's kind of weird, but this is what I saw on the TV. Just take it or leave it, but that, that's kind of what happened. And hey, okay, bro, just praying for you. The end, that's it. Even before it gets to sin, because I know that deep down inside there is a sinful nature. And if I feed it, it will grow. I'm not above sin. Are you kidding me? If I wanted to, I could ruin my marriage. I could ruin my ministry, disqualify myself from everything and, and mess up my kids for life in 10 seconds just with a couple clicks on my phone. You ever think about that? What keeps me from it? The grace of God and knowing my weakness, my frailty. Pride comes before the fall. And what stops us from judging other people is when you realize that you're weak too. Matthew 5.30 says, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. For it's more profitable for you that one of your members perish than your whole body to be cast into hell. He's not saying actually like cut off your hand, right? What he's saying is if it were possible to stop yourself from sinning, then cutting off your hand would be a great deal. If that's all it took, I'll never sin ever again if I just chop off my hand. That's easy, right? But the fact of the matter is it's way worse than that because it, it's inside of our heart. And we want to take the drastic steps that we need to keep ourselves from entering into that road. So here, here's the question I have. Do you leave that little open door, that foothold for Satan to take over your life? The number that you still haven't deleted of your ex? Maybe that person that used to be the guy that you used to get your drugs from and you still just have that contact in your phone or you still follow that person on Instagram? We all need to burn the bridges that lead to hell. And some of us are just so worried about what people think. You're like, well, I don't want that person to know that I can follow them. Who cares if it keeps you walking with Jesus Christ? It's your loyalty to Jesus that should cause you to break off any relationship that would keep you from him. So, Paul also says that you sin against your own body. And, and it's true. Sexual sin does mess with us in unique ways. But, Here's what I will say. Though there are well-intentioned preachers that talk about these things and say you'll be damaged for life and whatever. It's true. Sexual sin does mess you up, okay? However, though you may feel broken by sexual sin and you may be here today feeling judged by everybody, the question is whose body was truly broken? Isaiah 53 says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. When you feel forsaken for your sin, remember that Jesus was forsaken for our sin. When you feel abandoned, like you have no other friends because everybody else judges you, Jesus Christ was abandoned by God himself left on the cross to die, to take the penalty, the judgment for our sin. Every time we take communion, this is what I think about. Here's the blood, which means that every sin I've ever committed and will commit is washed by his blood. I'm now clean, forgiven. Every time I take that bread, here's what I remember. His body was broken, so I have to stop beating myself up every time that I sin. Instead, thank God. Confess it, but thank God that I don't have to take the penalty for my sin anymore. So knowing that, thinking about what God has done to save us, how can we not but live in the reality that we are clean and forgiven? How can we not love him in return? 
And if you're still in condemnation, remember, you are the one that Jesus Christ died for. Tim Keller, pastor, quoted him last week. He says this, I will close with this. The gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dare believed. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. So like I said, when you know whose you are, the other labels and identities don't fit anymore. You're a child of God. You belong to him. Your body's not your own. You're the temple of the Holy Spirit. You're the bride of Christ. You know whose you are. And there's nowhere here that you don't belong. Let's pray.